As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona Tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. From Sugar 23, I'm Angela Ledgewood, and this is Lit Up. I have been waiting for this day for about 18 months, ever since I met the incredible investigative journalist Brendan Burrell. He's joining us on Lit Up to talk about his book, The First Shots, The Epic Rivalries and Heroic Science Behind the Coronavirus Vaccine. I am the editorial director of the book imprint called Sugar 23 Books, and we are publishing Brendan's book with our partners, Mariner Books at HarperCollins. So because of this, I have been privy to all of Brendan's research through the course of the pandemic. I felt like I had such insider's knowledge of what was happening with the vaccine race before it hit the news. And now you can read all the behind the scenes too. He manages to bring the political chaos, these unbelievable scientific feats, and all the White House squabbles to life, which is why the superstar creator of Succession, The Big Short, and even comedies like Anchorman, Adam McKay, is adapting the first shots as a limited series for HBO. So read it before it reaches the big screen. Buy the book, read the book, give it to your dad. It has big dad energy. In the meantime, enjoy this conversation with Brendan Burrell. Brendan, thank you for joining us from LA. Thanks for having me. So where do we start with this topic? It's, you know, trending every day for sometimes the wrong reasons, sometimes the right reasons. When in this process did you get COVID? Oh, <laughs> Yeah, I was. it was last uh, Christmas. I was gearing up to go to do some in-person reporting, my first in-person reporting on, on this entire project in Washington, D.C. And I was asked to take a test before I hopped on a plane. And it was like a few days beforehand, I get the results back that I was positive. And I was like, oh, my God, because I'd been very, very careful. I had not been going out. My exposure to the outside world was going for runs in my park 
near my house. So I've, I still have no idea how I got it, but yeah, it, it, I got it. I had a very, very slight symptoms. I was, I'm still not like a hundred percent sure that I had it, except I trust the test. And so, yeah, that, that put a damper on things. It, it pushed my trip back by about 10 days and it gave me personal experience with COVID, I guess. Yeah. Well, I want to go to the very beginning of the book because I think whether you feel that it's the best thing that's happened in science and it saved the world or you're hesitant, I think this book is really helpful because it lays out how the vaccines came to be, the facts of that process. And I'd want to go back to Wuhan, December. What was happening on the ground there? And this is really where you open the book to give us a sense of this timeline Right. It was, I think, a, a time of great uncertainty and chaos there in, in, in Wuhan for people in the, the medical profession. The, there were these unknown pneumonia cases, people coming to the hospital coughing and their condition declining to the point that they had to be put on ventilators. And as this is unfolding, some doctors and researchers started trying to sequence whatever it was that was causing this, this disease. And as we've learned from some great reporting, a, a lot of these sequences were basically kept under wraps. Uh, the go Chinese government was telling people that you can't share the identity of what this virus is. They were embarrassed by it. They didn't want to create panic, all kinds of reasons. And one of the, the characters I focus on was a researcher at the Shanghai Public Health Laboratory. And he, he'd gotten his hands on a, a sample from Wuhan and I had a collaborator in Australia, and they were going to publish the first sequence of this. They knew that it was a coronavirus related to SARS, but there was a gag order from the Ministry of Health, do not publish this. But he's sitting there on the runway in Shanghai about to fly up to Beijing, and his Australian collaborator is like, listen, we have to release the sequence. People already know, it's already leaked out that it's related to the coronavirus. This needs to be shared with the world. And this Chinese researcher is like, hold on, let me think about it, let me think about it. And he's like, finally like, okay. And he hits send. And the sequence just ricochets around the globe. And suddenly, all of these scientists now have access to the source code for the coronavirus. And they can start constructing a vaccine, working on antibodies, all kinds of things in preparation for, you know, what could be a global outbreak. They don't know how, how, how wide it's going to spread then, but they're starting to get to work. And in the book, you label that date is January 11th when that sequence goes out. And to think of where we all were January 11th, the science community has just been blown up by a very exciting challenge, which mm. no one knew was going to be so dire, but the rest of us were just totally oblivious. So the gene sequence is shared and several scientists around the world get it. And then people start sharing it on Twitter. Who are some of the people that received that information and could actually do something with it? Well, it was posted publicly. And so labs all around the world, whether they were doing basic research or actually trying to make a vaccine, they were starting to work on it and they were trying to understand it, understand what the closest relative to the virus was, where it could have come from. And one of the groups that ended up with it was Barney Graham, 
a vaccinologist at the National Institutes of Health. And this guy, he's a very mellow, unassuming character. He's about six foot five with a salt and pepper beard. He's kind of a farm boy from Kansas, but he's just spent his whole life dedicated to stopping dangerous viruses. He had kind of a strategy worked out from some of his research about how you would go about making a vaccine to a coronavirus. And so he he starts whipping his team together. He had collaborators in Tennessee and North Carolina and in Texas, and they all get on this big Zoom call and start coming up with a game plan of how they're going to start testing their prototype vaccine in animals. And that's kind of the first step to to developing a vaccine and getting it out to people. So scientists have identified that this is a coronavirus. What is a coronavirus? The coronaviruses were kind of discovered relatively recently. There's about we know that there's about four of them that regularly circulate in humans and are as mild as the common cold. But every once in a while, a coronavirus has popped up that creates a very severe pneumonia-like illness. And so the most famous one was in 2002 and 2003, SARS, Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome, which broke out in, in the region in China around Hong Kong. It led to around 700 deaths. The second time that there was an outbreak was in, in 2012, something called Middle East Respiratory Syndrome. And that also led to quite a few deaths. But most of the times, it burns itself out. It, va it vanishes as soon as it arrives. But everybody was sort of looking, well, what if it doesn't? What if it sort of gains a critical mass and it starts to spread globally? And that was the fear that Barney Graham had in particular. And so that's why, starting five years ago, he was thinking about how do you make a vaccine against a coronavirus? You mentioned that the virus can sometimes burn itself out, and that seems to be a reason that you mention in the book as to why pharmaceutical companies are hesitant to develop these types of vaccines. Yeah, I mean, traditionally, there has not been a lot of money in vaccines against these emerging diseases, these, these pandemic threats. It's one of these things, it's like, is there money in protecting the world against meteors? It's this very low likelihood event. It takes a lot of research and development to protect against it, but you don't know if you're ever going to get a payday. And that's kind of the situation with things like Ebola or the coronavirus or pandemic flu. There's just not a lot of money in it. So pharmaceutical companies are going to focus on things that are these endemic viruses that we have ongoing problems with like measles or seasonal flu. And so kind of filling in the gap, you have academic researchers and nonprofit researchers who are sort of doing the preparatory work, kind of like, let's understand this virus. Let's understand what's a potential threat in the future. And the question that sort of we faced with this new coronavirus was, how do the two meet in the middle? When does big pharma connect with these little uh, scientists, because Big Pharma has all of these resources that you need to actually take something from a laboratory and get it into a syringe. And so that, that's kind of the, the tale that I end up telling is, is, is how, how did this happen? How did it happen so quickly? And what are the challenges? Well, and to this point, you focus very much on the Moderna story. You kind of backed that horse. No one knew which pharmaceutical company or which team would make a breakthrough. 
I'm wondering how you got such unique access to that team. I knew that Moderna was the first vaccine that went into humans here in the U.S. in a phase one safety trial. And so I knew that when I started my book. But there were a lot of other people that there was a lot of skepticism about Moderna. They were using this newfangled technology, mRNA. A lot of people weren't sure it was going to work. It had the potential to be put in a shot very quickly, but, you know, it was untested. So when I started to work on this book, I was scrambling and looking at all the other competitors as well. Novavax, which produces a protein-based vaccine, that's kind of the old school method. Uh, and then there were all these teams working on virus-based vaccines. And so I, I did my best to kind of follow each of these technologies and try to understand them. But it, it is true that, that you know, by last summer, I was definitely talking to the NIH team and, and trying to understand how they went through that process and had a, a ground, a seat watching the, the vaccine prove to be effective. So that was very exciting. You said that the mRNA was a new technology. And I want to be careful there because I feel like all these scientists that you mentioned had been working on this technology for many years. So what do you mean exactly? <laughs> sure. No, that's fair enough. People have been wanting to put mRNA in vaccines for 20 years, 30 years maybe. It had been studied. It was difficult to use. It, it was not in any existing vaccines that had made it through FDA approval. So we knew a lot about it. You know, let, let's take a step back and, and think about the, the traditional vaccines that we use. We either use a killed virus, which is you take a weakened virus, like taking flu and running it through a chicken egg so that it's not as well adapted to a person. You put these weakened viruses into the human body. It stimulates an immune reaction, production of antibodies, and then you're ready if the real virus comes along and attacks you, Okay. The second generation of vaccines we ended up with are these protein-based vaccines. What if we create like a targeted vaccine that just contains the, the protein that's most important to attack, and that will make the body's response more specific to that specific pathogen? Okay, so to make a protein-based vaccine, you need the gene, and then you grow it up in basically a cell culture in a giant vat in a factory. The advantage of mRNA is you're actually turning the human body cells into little factories for your vaccine. So you're just giving the cell the gene itself. And so in theory, this should be faster. It should produce a very potent immune reaction. But yeah, it, it had not been proven. It, there, there's lots of great ideas out there that sound really good on paper. But when you, you know, introduce biology to the mix, they don't work. And Moderna in particular, you know, it had had a trial with a flu vaccine the previous year and it had produced some antibodies, but then the, the sort of response fell off pretty quickly. I mean, it had other drugs that had been developing that had failed. I mean, the company had been around for 10 years without a success. So it was an unproven technology. We knew a lot about it, but we didn't know if it was going to work. And so Pfizer decided to use this same type of technology as well. That must have been a hard day for Moderna, for the Moderna folks to hear about, that they now had this behemoth competitor who was really going to jump into the race. Uh, yeah, I mean, it was a funny moment. I, I write about it in the book. March 16th is the day that Moderna injects the first patients with its mRNA vaccine. 
March 17th, the very next day, Pfizer issues a press release that they're going to be working on their own mRNA vaccine. And so Moderna was big for a biotech company, but it's nothing compared to, you know, a, a company like Pfizer, which is just, you know, huge resources and, and a wealth of experience. I mean, Moderna had never been in a large-scale phase three clinical trial. Pfizer, of course, I mean, that company's been around for 150 years. So yeah, it, it was definitely a, an epic battle that was about to play out. And, and yeah, I think, I think Moderna had some advantages. They had, they had a little bit more experience than Pfizer and its partner, BioNTech, this, this German company that, that designed the vaccine, but it didn't have all the resources. And that, of course, leads to sort of this next level, which is Moderna ends up working with the U.S. government and Operation Warp Speed, Pfizer throws a billion dollars into their own development efforts to stay independent and, and to move as fast as possible. Yeah. I just want to mention to everyone listening that March 16 and 17 in New York City, we had been in lockdown for only about three days. And we felt like we were the epicenter of the American problem with the pandemic. And to think that all these scientists have already been able to get to human trials is pretty remarkable. So let's cut to late March. What was the White House thinking? I, I think you know, we all know that the the initial response to the coronavirus could have been faster. There were all kinds of failures along the way. But you, you know, inside the White House and inside the health department, there were the hard right-wingers who were afraid of saying anything about the coronavirus that would hurt the economy. They only cared about Trump's numbers. They didn't want people saying negative things. But there were also people that were trying to get the White House to take it more seriously. There were people who were trying to stick to the science, and there were people who were trying to move fast with vaccine development. In, in March, it was the brightest spot in the coronavirus story, I mean, I, I, I hate to put it that way, but it was the moment when everybody recognized that there was a problem, you know, because that's when we shut down the country. Trump was on board with, with shutting down the country. I mean, whatever denial happened in the early days, some of it was political, some of it was just scientific. Nobody was in sure how, how big this thing was going to be. Even, you know, Tony Fauci was, you know, hoping that the thing would burn itself out. People were optimistic that masks would start to get worn, that social distancing would work. But of course, we know it didn't, right? It became too politicized that all of these really basic public health measures failed. And so the only thing you were left with was a vaccine. That became the big hope. And so... And from March into April, there started to be sort of this crew of what uh, some people might call the deep state, which is the the public health minded officials who knew that something needed to happen. Um, and one of the characters that I, I focus on in the book is Bob Cadlick, who ran this obscure office called the Assistant Secretary for Preparedness and Response. He was like despised by the Trump team. You know, Trump wanted to fire him. And he was just like a guy who who took the blows and he kept on going. And he and a scientist from the FDA, Peter Marks, came up with this idea for Operation Warp Speed, which was number one, you're going to start to fund the pharmaceutical companies to 
manufacture vaccine before it's proven safe and effective. And then you're also going to select companies to fund their clinical trials as well and to sort of basically hold their hands as they as they go through the process. So that became a epic, you know, $10 billion investment that basically changed the course of the pandemic. I mean, it's an incredible idea to fund with billions of dollars companies whose work could likely fail, but knowing that if you don't start now, the vaccine will take way too long. And out of the companies within Operation Warp Speed, how many were successful? Oh, that, tough to, to measure success. So scientifically, we've, we've had this funny experience where the, the two mRNA vaccines that we got results from first were just, you know, incredible successes. And it made everybody think, oh, making vaccines is easy. <laughs> but that's not the typical experience. And the other candidates, we saw the biggest players in the vaccine world, Sanofi, their vaccine was a flop. Early on, they realized they weren't generating the right immune response. And uh, then we've had these other companies like Novavax, which it's their vaccine seems to work in its clinical trials, but the company has never been able to get it together in terms of manufacturing and making it through regulatory hurdles. And then we had a vaccine like Johnson & Johnson's, which you know was the successful clinical trial, but it was kind of like the third place. And then it had the problems with this very, very rare side effect, this, this, these clots. That kind of scared people off, even though it's a very unlikely thing to happen. It's less risky, as some people have pointed out, than birth control. It's sort of gotten this bad rap. And so I think that that's always been one of the challenges of vaccines. You're giving them to healthy people, so you, you can't have any problems whatsoever. <laughs> so the success rate of Operation Warp Speed was it, it always expected some vaccines to fail. That was part of the gamble. But actually, a remarkable number of them worked. Could you talk through what a regular timeline looks like for FDA approval for a vaccine versus what happened with the COVID vaccines? Because I think that's where there's a lot of hesitancy and worry. People say, well, this all happened too fast. We're taking a vaccine that hasn't had that final approval from the FDA. And what does that really mean? Right. I mean, the, the whole idea with typical vaccine development is part of the reason it goes so slow is you don't want to waste a whole bunch of money and you don't want to end up going into clinical trial with something that's not going to work. What typically happens is you'll do a small experiment on mice, wait for the results to come in, then you sort of get your monkeys, which is going to be a little bit more expensive and it's sort of you tested in monkeys. And then once you sort of re feel real comfortable with it, you do your small trial in people. And usually there's a big, long gap between getting the results, submitting them to FDA, getting the approval for the next step. So vaccine development can take five years, 10 years sometimes. It's crazy. And of, of course, that wouldn't work in a pandemic. When people were talking about how, how long it would take initially, they're like, oh, it's 14 months minimum, which is actually incredibly fast. Operation Warp Speed did it in eight months because they, they did the mice, the monkeys, all in parallel. They got this thing in people the moment they felt it was going to be safe enough. And then the FDA agreed to sort of review the data on the fly and to give them sort of the, the green light a lot faster than normal. 
I think there there was nothing they did that was sort of cutting corners per se, but I think the companies and and the government knew they were taking financial risks. This situation that's coming up with antibody response waning and the the situation with the Delta, where the vaccines don't have the durability some people hope for, we didn't know that because we our clinical trials were only two months long. A normal clinical trial, you'd go six months or a year and you would have had all of that data. We didn't have that data when these vaccines received emergency authorization. So I think there have been some sort of unknowns and some things that have been different about this because it's in a pandemic. As someone who's researching this every day and utterly consumed by it, were you willing and ready to get that vaccine as soon as you could? Of course, yeah. I, I you know, I, like everybody else, I had felt vulnerable from from this disease. I wanted my life to go back to normal. I was not a high priority on the list when the vaccines got rolled out, but I was eager to get it. And the the second I had a date, I went over and and got my Moderna shot. It felt really good. It was an amazing experience. <laughs> Something that's been very controversial in the news, and you do touch upon it in your book, is how the virus originated. In the book, you mentioned that the, the coronavirus is zoonotic diseases, which I think, you know, obviously says that they originate in animals and then pass from an animal to a human. Where do you think the virus came from? Yeah, I, I don't think we have really enough evidence to assess that. I think there's some people who have very strong opinions, and there's a lot of very strong circumstantial evidence either way. I mean, basically, the, what's been going on is, is, as we know, early on, there was not a lot of information coming out from Wuhan. Uh, the first theory was that the virus emerged from this wet market where wildlife is sold. Um that's we know that that's how the first SARS epidemic broke out in 2002. The SARS coronavirus went from a a bat to animals that were being traded in these types of markets. So the first sort of suspect when the new coronavirus broke out was that type of uh, spillover event, and and that seemed really likely. Um, as a little bit more data came in, people started realizing people were unable to demonstrate that that had actually happened. None of the animals at that Wanan market actually tested positive for coronavirus. And so there was no, there was a missing link there. And so then we started to hear, oh wait, maybe the virus actually emerged a few months earlier. And, and even though there were human cases at that wet market, uh, that might've actually just been what, you know, a amplifying event. That, the, that a spillover event had already happened and then that market, you know, draws in thousands of people every day and that was just where it suddenly spread and blew up. And so that became kind of kind of the theory. But there are always pieces that didn't quite fit and the way that the, the story came out was unsatisfying to a lot of people. And it turns out that, you know, about 15 miles away from that wet market, there's a virus lab called the Wuhan Institute of Virology where a researcher has been studying coronaviruses. She goes out into the wild, collects samples from bat caves and from abandoned mines and all kinds of things and brings them back to the lab and does experiments that we don't have a lot of visibility into. And some of her stories of, that she's told have sort of changed over time, which has added to some of the suspicion like maybe there was a leak Somebody in her lab got sick, 
and then spread it to the community. I think that theory is definitely worth pursuing, but it's it's obviously become just this huge political football because, uh, you know, it sort of got poisoned by sort of all of the anti China rhetoric coming from the Trump administration on the one hand. And then also there's a lot of scientists who are defensive of anybody saying, oh, yeah, this was a leak. This was, you know, poor science, et cetera, et cetera. I don't know if we're ever going to have have an answer, but I, I, I definitely I don't have a strong opinion one way or another. I think either either are possibilities. Either way, we're dealing with the virus and have to prepare in the future for viruses like it. Another thing I found fascinating because was this idea of, of war games and how the government will simulate disasters to then see how they would have to respond to them. You mentioned that it was the army doctor, Cadillac, who would have maybe participated in these types of preparedness exercises. But how does a government prepare for something like this? Bob Cadillac was, of course, one of these architects of warp speed, and he was criticized for not, you know, having his eye on the ball in terms of pandemics. But the year before the coronavirus outbreak in 2019, he ran something called Crimson Contagion, which basically envisioned a pandemic flu virus emerging from China and spreading to the U.S. This was a, a war game where they had the emergency offices of a bunch of different states, all these state health officials, and tried to understand how the federal government should work with the state health authorities and try to make sure that everything was going to be ready for a real emergency. And I mean, th there were a number of interesting things that came out of it. Number one was I think the estimate of the number of deaths was about 500,000 deaths would come out of an event like that, which is remarkably close to what we've had with this new coronavirus, you know, and, and they sort of came up with estimates about how much money they would have to spend. I mean, all this stuff, the government stuff can be really boring, but it's actually... <laughs> pretty amazing the, the amount of thought that has to go into like how much money do you need to set aside for a pandemic and so that was kind of part of the goal and it was trying to figure out well where are there gaps because and as we saw with this new coronavirus there was issues with say not knowing how many hospital beds were filled in a given state how quickly the coronavirus was spreading and Cadillac saw all of the, these problems in, in 2019 thanks to that simulation but, you know, fixing all those problems was going to take a while. It just sort of created a list of, list of priorities. But one of the most interesting things that, that sort of came out of some of his work and his, his simulations was he had been talking to the Japanese about what if there was a, a bioterror agent or a virus that was released during the Tokyo Olympics, which were supposed to take place in 2020. And they had agreed they were going to do a simulated evacuation of the of the Olympics or something like that. And when in February, the Diamond Princess cruise ship had a, ended up with a patient with coronavirus and it started spreading through all of these elderly vacationers and, and Americans who were docked in Japan, Cadillac was able to call up his friend in, in Japan and basically organize a, a plan to evacuate that cruise ship. It, he was he was all about preparation. Well, we can't go into all these aspects that are in the book, but other things that I found fascinating was just understanding the, the idea of a national stockpile. 
all of these vaccines, drugs, food even, that a country has stored away in case of disasters. We haven't even touched upon the chaotic White House, but, you know, it's all in the book. But these are just some of the acronyms for organizations that you learn about that are just in the news every day. Departments like the HHS, the NIH, the CDC, the FDA, FEMA, all these different groups that are working within the government to try and and help us essentially. What was it like reporting and trying to get it right from all these different perspectives? <laughs> yeah, I mean, there, there were a lot of acronyms. There was a lot for me as trying to understand DC bureaucracy, DC culture, all these agencies was, it was a whole other kind of jungle. And each of those agencies has a different mission, they have a different culture, and they have a different level of openness to reporters, as I found out. <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, the National Institutes of Health is this scientific institution, and they are just, they're all about openness. So they were very helpful to me, and that was, that was great, because I understood the basic science of the vaccine some of the other organizations were, were tougher, but the HHS, for instance, can be very, very secretive about certain things, especially with the vaccine development and their agreements with companies. I eventually did manage to find sources on the inside who were willing to share some of their notes with me. Bob Cadlick started talking to me under the agreement that, that I, I, I wouldn't share that until my book came out. I, I sort of gradually started to get a feel for for how the government works and why we need these these different organizations and where they came from, but it can be daunting to an to an outsider. <laughs> well, when you mention, you know, I found my sources on the inside. I'm wondering once you have established with someone that they are willing to be a source, what does that look like then? Is it are they the phone calls on Signal? Is it them sharing their schedules? How did you craft those relationships? And I'm sure they were all very unique in their own way. Yeah, definitely. Part of the reason people were very secretive around Bob Cadlick's organization is there had been, you know, this whistleblower in the spring and there were all kinds of investigations into what was going on. And so people were refusing to talk generally until I sort of found my way in. But then, you know, yeah, they wanted to communicate on Signal. You know, some of them would meet me in person. But yeah, were they, they disguised. They were... <laughs> no, there were there were no disguises. There's no 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 flower pots in any windows or anything like that. Did but they definitely... talk about the honey pots? <laughs> the honey pots. <laughs> that was Michael Callahan. Yeah. You have but, to explain uh, what a honeypot is because I use that term since I've read your book a lot. I've yep. been using it around like, with my boyfriend. I'm like, oh, she's a honeypot or be careful. Yeah. You know, it's just a funny term. But what does it mean? It's kind of a dated term. Yeah. I mean, it was. it's kind of from, you know, the old spy movies or whatever, or it's a... it's an attractive, typically an attractive female there to lure in somebody to disclose information to, uh, you know, a hostile government, I guess. So I hope that term isn't politically incorrect, but I'm, I think anyone could be a honeypot. So much has been written about COVID. Obviously, we're still digesting the news every day. How do you think your book is different? I mean, the number one thing is most of the books about COVID have been about everything that went wrong. And they've sort of 
describe the government from a height of, you know, 10,000 feet. You know, you get Tony Fauci in there, you get Deborah Burks in there. I try to take the reader into the room with the people who are trying to do something, who are trying to make something, a vaccine, who are trying to rescue people from cruise ships, all this kind of action adventure. I think, yeah, that's the thing is I... Yeah, I, I wanted this to feel like a thriller. I wanted it to be, it's a little bit funny too. I don't think people know that. I, I think it's funny because it's like, I mean, these are these are teams of people that are working hard on, on the brink. Um, and I try to capture that that excitement in the book. I You know, for me, the politics, it's like the backdrop. There, That's, you know, you, there's a little bit of Trump in there. There's a little bit of that BS going on. But the players on stage are the heroes. I want to dive into why you are a really interesting person to tell this story. You have a PhD in biology and have spent many years covering the science beat, doing your PhD, and you traveled all around Central America. And I've read that you were catching frogs, snakes, bees, and really immersed in the natural environment. How do you think that prepared you for your incredible career so far? I was definitely in another world about 15 years ago. I mean, going back even further, of course, my my influences were, you know, I grew up reading David Quammen's column in Outside Magazine. David Quammen is, is the author of Spillover, and he used to write about something called The Wild File, so I would read his articles on lions and everything, and, and I just loved reading about the outdoors. And as I started to grow up, I, I was just fascinated by nature and catching all kinds of critters. Yeah, I got sucked pretty deep into the world of field biology, but it took me a while to kind of figure out, okay, how do I combine my interest in reading and writing with the science side of things? So after six years in a PhD program studying bees, I came out the other end and started writing newspaper articles and and pitching freelance magazine stories about all these fascinating topics. The way I came to your work was through a piece you were preparing to write for The Atlantic about ingredients that would potentially go into the vaccine. Can you talk to me about whether that was kind of the first foray into understanding where the vaccine would come from? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I obviously come at this from a very particular perspective. I mean, some people might have come to writing about COVID from the medical side of things, but me, I've always got that sort of idea about how humans interact with nature. And as I started to dig into the vaccine science, I I heard, oh my God, there's this ingredient in vaccines that comes from a tree in Chile that was at one point under threat uh, from being over-harvested. And I was like, that's fascinating. Nobody's writing about it. And then I start to dig a little bit further and I find out, wow, this thing, it's like, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars for a milliliter of this stuff. And it's just got this this one company called Desert King, which controls the entire market. It was m- sort of my way in to realizing that the vaccine race had so many different dimensions. You know, it wasn't just like sterile laboratories and people in white lab coats. There's this whole supply chain as we started to learn. And so, I mean, yes, I focused that article on the supply chain for a vaccine ingredient. But as we learned, you need glass for your vaccine vials. You need the bags that you grow your your vaccines in. And so that, that first article in The Atlantic was my supply chain article, I would say. 
and just just trying to understand that aspect of things. How did you spend your pandemic besides writing furiously? I was almost in my apartment 23 hours a day, I would say. I would go out for my run or my bike ride or whatever. It became kind of monotonous. And I had the, the excitement and intensity of working on this book, but, but it, was, it was pretty rough. I think I experienced what everybody did this year, which is we got our vaccines and we thought we were out of the woods. And then we hear about the Delta showing up and you're wondering what is acceptable, what is ethical to do, what is safe to do. I think I, I, I you know, as a person in their 40s, I feel relatively confident that my vaccine is pr protecting me. But I certainly wouldn't want to wouldn't want to spread the virus to any vulnerable people. And so, so yeah, I just kind of take it one day at a time. There have been positives and negatives that everyone has taken out of this experience of living through a pandemic. Is there something positive from your personal life that you feel you've learned about yourself or how to live differently as the world does open up? In my personal experience with the pandemic was there was this initial intensity where I was checking the news constantly. My internet addiction level was at the start of the pandemic, it sort of reached a, an apex and I had to really pull back. And I, I started trying to, you know, read more books and spend more time outside and try to live, uh, you know, a smaller life, I guess. And I just tried to appreciate things in my own neighborhood and my own city in Los Angeles. And so that's been very eye-opening for me. I think it's nice, you know, we, I think everybody also sort of, at least I did, I got to know my neighbors better. That's a beautiful <laughs> answer. I love that. Because your way into your work is through nature, but what have you come to realize about this connection between us human beings and nature and the, the importance of taking care of our environment? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. A disease like this is a constant reminder that nature is a very powerful force and that we're, you know, we, we can pave our streets and build our houses and all of that, but there's this invisible virus that can, you know, basically put a wrench in everything in our lives in an instant. It's, it's kind of incredible. And I think, you know, regardless of where the, the immediate source of this virus, this particular virus came from, whether it was a lab leak or if it spread from some type of spillover event, I mean, these, the animal world is, you know, it's not only sort of a reservoir for potentially dangerous viruses, it's also kind of potentially something that we can study and learn from. Is there anything you want people to know about the vaccine or the race to leave off on? I mean, I, th I think the main thing that pe people should take away from this is that, it, I mean, this was an incredible scientific accomplishment. It was built on decades of research and some incredibly dedicated people who, you know, pulled this off in record time. You know, the, the vaccines we're using, the mRNA vaccines have now gone into something like 200 million people here in the U.S. and they have an incredible safety record. Yeah, everybody should go out and get vaccinated. <laughs> I would strongly encourage that. I think this is the best place to ask you what lights you up. <laughs> <laughs>
when I when I read when I when I Brandon, it's all yours. <laughs> Whatever you think, would in whichever arena. You know, I mean, I I I just love hearing people's stories and learning these stories of these these amazing people and what what fascinate them and and how they solve problems and learning about their passions. I like to know what lights other people up. I guess <laughs> so. Storytelling is it never gets old, and so yeah, that's that's what lights me up. Brandon, thank you so much for chatting with me and sharing your incredible knowledge. It's been lovely to, to have you on. Yeah, thanks for having me. Brandon, how can we follow you? You can follow me on Twitter at B Burrell. Uh, you can visit my the website I set up for the book, thefirstshots.com. Yeah. It's been yeah, it's been been great to work with you guys too. I'm so excited about this. Thanks again. Thank you so much for listening to this conversation with Brendan Burrell about his book, The First Shots. You can buy it on our website, lituppodcast.com. Join us for our next conversation on November 9th with Emily Rajakowski about her book, My Body. It's bound to be the book everyone is talking about. See you then. Lit Up is a podcast from Sugar23. It's hosted by me, Angela Ledgewood, and is produced by Liam Billingham. Mike Mayer and Michael Sugar are the executive producers. The theme music is by Andre Rodofsky. Please make sure to rate, review, and follow the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you like to listen. Until next time, bye everyone. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona Tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.